glad you're here. If you'll turn to Revelation chapter 2, I'll meet you there in verse 12 as we take up now our third church of the seven churches. If you're just coming on Wednesday night, we're in the middle of winter Bible study. We take eight weeks and we're walking through in January and February the seven churches. One week of introduction, seven weeks of churches. Thanks to Pastor Ed for taking us to Smyrna last week. Appreciate it very much. And this week we travel to Pergamum. I just lost the name of the word all of a sudden. Had to read it. Pergamum. Probably said Pergamoon or something like that. But you know where I'm from. It's Pergamum. That worked for you? That worked for you? All right. Good. We have a city in my hometown. And we know if you are from this area of Central Florida, if you ever say the words Kissimmee, we know you're not from Central Florida. And inevitably, if any news ever happens in Kissimmee, Florida, the newscasters will say, today in Kissimmee, Florida, and all of us say, you're not from there, are you? It's Kissimmee. Anyway, welcome to Houston. Glad you're here. Listen to this letter to the church at Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. (laughs) Can you imagine? I mean, does it ever make, would it make you uncomfortable at all if somebody were to say to you, I know where you live. I know where you dwell. But good news, this is Jesus and you want Jesus to know where you dwell. And he does. But notice where they dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet, I might be a little ringy. Is it maybe it's on the uh, these monitors here that are doing? Am I ringing to y'all? Does it sound a little tinny, a little strange? You think I sound great, wonderful, excellent? Maybe just turn me down on the floors a little bit, guys, and that might help the reverb up here on the stage. Could be just me. You got me? There we go. Bring me down up here just a little bit. And we're going to get there. Stay with us. Getting better, getting better, getting better, getting better. All right, well, I could do my Willie Nelson impression. All right. Okay, I think we got it. That does sound better. Very good. So where was I? Oh, yes, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. By the way, it's Wednesday night, so relax, all right? It's just just us, just family, just Wednesday night crowd. Come on, help me out. It's the best of the best, the cream of the crops, the top of the heap. Come on, help me out. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Well, let's just stop there because that's just good. Bad, but good. I mean, bad that they're in this situation and facing these circumstances because they are certainly facing intense pressure and persecution. And so Jesus writes to them a letter through the hand and the pen of John and initially sets sort of the tone and the context here to establish truth and according to whom. Truth and according to whom. I was reading recently about the man, the hunter. Winter was coming on and he was thinking about needing a new winter coat, so he ventured out into the forest to shoot a bear to make of the bear a warm fur coat. And along the way, he saw a bear coming towards him, and so he raised his rifle and pointed at the bear. Just before he pulled the trigger, the bear said, wait. This happens all the time, you know. The bear said, wait. But in a very calm and soothing voice, not to escalate the situation whatsoever, he said, why are you going to shoot me? 
And the man said, the hunter said, well, I need a warm coat for winter. And the bear said, I understand perfectly. I really do. I'm, I'm stuck out here all winter myself. I totally understand. But here's the thing. I'm also in need. I need a good meal. I'm hungry, and I just need to eat. You know, with winter coming on, I won't have very many meals, so I know you need a coat, and, and I need a good meal. Maybe we could work something out. Maybe we could reach a compromise. And in the end, the hunter was well enveloped with the bear's, bear's fur, and the bear had eaten his dinner, so everybody was happy. I mean, they got what they wanted. The man got a fur coat. And the bear got a good meal. And the point of that silly story that of course did not happen is be careful who and when you compromise. Be careful. Jesus is writing to the church at Pergamum which is known as the compromising church. The compromising church. And they face intense pressure. And at the very outset of this letter to the compromising but not yet compromised, see, So this letter's an intervention. You are compromising and you're in danger of being compromised. So Jesus writes. And to establish this very clear point, the words, the first and the last, who died and came to life in chapter 2, verse 8. Each of these letters gives us a little fuller picture of who Jesus is and who's writing to these particular churches. And in verse 12, he said, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now the sword is a symbol of authority. And certainly the symbol of Roman power and authority. Yes, in this text as it's developed, we'll see that it also refers to truth. Because the word of God, the sword of the spirit, is truth. But in this context, to begin this letter, what's happening is Jesus is establishing his authority to say what is or is not true. The one who speaks, who has the two-edged sword, that symbol of Roman power, Jesus says, Remember, there is a higher power. That symbol of Roman authority, remember, there is an ultimate authority. Jesus rightfully takes that into himself. There's a higher power, the one with ultimate authority is speaking to you. And the church is facing all sorts of external pressure and internal pressure to compromise and no doubt has had many a conversation wherein one person would say, that's not true or that's true, and another person might say, according to whom? Right? Have you had any of those conversations? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Who says what's true? Who gets to decide what is or isn't true? And don't think that we're all that special in our day and time with the denial of absolute truth. That's nothing new. You you know, that's nothing new. That's happening right here in Pergamum. There are people in Pergamum who are talking compromise because who can really say what's right and what's wrong? Don't I get to say for me? It's my life. So what's true is what's true for me. What's true for you is true for you. I can live with that. Can you live with that? Because there really is no absolute truth because no one has the authority to say ultimately and absolutely what is true and what is not true. This is the conversation going on in Pergamum and in Houston and in the United States of America and all through the world. It's really subtle idolatry, and I want you to see this. All this is is, is a, a subtle form of idolatry that says, there's no God 
with any authority, and certainly not ultimate authority, to say what is and is not true. Once the foundations are eroded and the house begins to fall, then all things, all bets are off, anything goes, and you know, we're back to judges where the people did what was right in their own eyes, because there is no sense of truth, there is no authority. It's not what the Bible says or what God said, it's what I think and how I feel today. Maybe not tomorrow, Maybe not the next day, because see, with the absence of absolute truth come situational ethics, which means I can make decisions based on the circumstances or the context or the condition of my life today. And I might change that tomorrow, because tomorrow I might feel differently. But I reserve the right to decide what's right for me. Who are you to tell me what's right or wrong? This is the conversation. So you see what Jesus is doing at the start of this letter? To the compromising church, he says, hey, let's establish something here. I have the authority, and I am the truth. This sharp two-edged sword comes from his mouth. His very words are dividing and divisive between what is true and what is not true, what is real and what is make-believe. He's writing to the church to remind them that he says so. He says so. I uh, typically will challenge pastors and preachers and communicators, Bible teachers, never to say, well, in my opinion, never, unless it's a circumstance, a situation that calls for an opinion. I, I, I don't even think it's necessary for a communicator of God's word to ever say, well, I think or I believe. And you hear that a lot, you know, we try to soft pedal it. We are talking to someone of a Buddhist faith persuasion or a Muslim or a, any other faith-based or non-faith or an atheist. And, and, and we're not trying to be pushy and we don't want to seem arrogant. So we say, well, you know, for me, for me, my opinion, I believe. Rebecca was going at it with a Jehovah's Witness a few months ago. And she's one of her classmates and so just about every night of that class three times a week we'd get to talk about her interchange and, and Rebecca was doing a great job of sharing the Bible and the gospel and convictions and I just kept reminding her every time she says I believe you say the Bible says Amen. see because we can debate all day on differences of opinion or even convictions and belief that's not the point what does the Bible say what has God said? That's all you had to say. So every time somebody says, well, what do you feel? How do you think? What do you believe? That's not really important. What I'd like to show you is what the Bible says. So that you're not disagreeing with me, Hank, you've got to take this one to God. Don't send me an email. Take up an email. Hello? See, because the Bible's clear on a lot of issues that we want to step back from, and with a good heart, I don't mean to condemn good-heartedness, people trying to be loving and compassionate and caring, considered. I get all that. But what you don't want to do is take God out of the place of authority or the scriptures away from the truth that it is by using any language that seems to imply maybe it is or maybe it isn't. Have you ever heard the expression, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, that whole middle phrase is really unnecessary. You just drop that middle phrase right out. Because you know what? The Bible's true whether you believe it or not. Jesus is right whether you agree or not. God is right whether you like it or not. It's not about whether I like it. If I'm happy with it. 
And here's the thing about truth. It's a wonderful thing. Truth is just true. That's just it. See? It's not waiting for me to affirm it or to agree with it or to approve it or to vote for it. It's not waiting for a public opinion to determine whether or not, in fact, it is true. It's true. I'm telling you right now, if I jump off this stage, I'm going to land down there with a thud. And Hank and I are going to change places because then I'm going to need a chair to roll around here. That's just true. Now, I can convince myself that I'm a little bird. And I could just absolutely overwhelmingly convince myself, I could even get a little some of that hypnotic therapy, maybe take a magical, I'm a little bird pill. I could get all of y'all on board, cheer me on, hold up signs that say, you are a little bird. You could tell me how I should just give it a try, I shouldn't be afraid, I should just not be afraid to be me, because if I want to be a little bird, I can be a little bird. Lord, this is getting really thick. I'm getting in trouble. <laughs> But can I just tell you, uh, the beautiful thing about truth is I am not a little bird. I'm not even a big bird, although I have been called worse. I'm not a bird and I cannot fly. The truth is, if I step off this stage, I'm going down. And you know, there are lots of things that are just simply flatly, permanently true. They're not up for debate. And Jesus writes this letter just established to this potentially compromising and potentially compromised church. Let's get back here to my words. Let's get back here the words of the first and the last, verse 8. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So let me make the statement I think Jesus is making in affirmation. This is a commendation. So truth, but according to whom? According to the Lord, to his word. Good news, congratulations, commendations are in order. You've overcome the obvious. You dwell. You live. Your address is next door to Satan's very throne. Now, you know, there's some debate on exactly what that means, just like most of Revelation. There's debate about this and the meaning of that and typology of that and the significance of that. Some people speculate that it's a geographical notation, that there was just an elevated, jutting up rocky place and there are pagan temples there. So you'd look up sort of in that area and you'd see all those pagan temples and there were tons of pagan temples in Pergamum and say, look at there, that's Satan's throne. Very possible. The geography would lend itself well uh, to that. There are other kinds of religions practiced here, like, uh, like the religion uh, to the God who now we have the symbol of a pole and a snake wrapped through the pole. It's our medical uh, symbol we still use to this day. There was a temple there to him, and so perhaps the serpent, Satan's serpent, is a connection. But probably, 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 uh, since this was the very first city in the world to build a temple to Caesar... And the very launching pad from which imperial worship or worship of the emperor began. And from which emperor worship scattered throughout the Roman Empire. It's the throne of Satan. You know, John might have just thought that about the emperor. You know, because you know where he's at while he's writing this letter. Not too happy with the guy, okay? So there they are. However you take that, whatever you take that to mean, it's clear that they are dwelling in a place most people would rather not dwell. 
And by the way, the word dwell is that word you think it is. It means to stay put. Like, may the word of God dwell in you richly, not fly through you or stop off overnight or visit for a while. To dwell means to stay, stick, to remain, to abide. Now, I want you to get this. Jesus is saying to the church whose address is next to the devil's, stay put. Dwell there. I know you're dwelling there. He's not saying, I know you're about to get out of there. or I sure hope you can escape that terrible uh, problem that you have living next door to the devil himself. Because there are certainly easier places to live and places to flee to. But let me just say a few things. I can make quick order of this particular point. Remember that we're supposed to be where we are on purpose, wherever we are. We like to think, we good Southern Baptists like to think that Derek and his family is in Girona, Spain because God sent them there and planted them there and they're supposed to stay there and dwell there because there are missionaries there. But how do you know he could come up here and say the exact same thing to you and me here? And you know what? He'd be just as right as you would be. Because we're all missionaries, aren't we? Does the Great Commission apply only to the Greater Europe Missionary Missions? Is that right, Charles? Amy, can I get an amen there? The Great Commission only applies to professional, vocational, fully supported missionaries in the dark places and the far reaches of the universe. Oh, so you want to amen that? I called his name Sunday night at a leader meeting. He wasn't here. Ten people texted him, said I was talking about him. He and Amy got up, got dressed, and flew down here to find out what they were missing. No, we're supposed to be where we're supposed to be on purpose, which means we need to be where we're needed to be. Want to write that down? Let me say that again. We need to be where we're needed to be. And we're supposed to bloom where we're planted, Titus 1, 2, or 1, 12. So think about this place where you are right here. If Jesus were to write you a letter, would he say, hey, I'm writing to you before you can get out of there? Because I know you're ready to flee and get away from there. I know there's a lot of places you could be, would rather be, and you just feel like you live next door to the devil himself. But I want to use a particular word here, coach. I want to say you're dwelling there, which means uh, stay put. Get that for sale sign out of your front yard. Start looking around at the neighbor's houses and say, oh my goodness, God has brought the mission field next door. I got them right where I wanted them. You know our street, right? We've got Muslim Buddhist, Hindu, nothing. Christian, Christian. We got them surrounded on our street. Because we're supposed to be where we're needed to be, where we're bloom, we should plant. And Satan dwells there, and so should the church. See, that's the point. Satan dwells there. That's where you say, did, you, did the Bible say that? Yeah, look at verse 13. Last phrase, where Satan dwells. So that's, that's where they are. Not only next to the throne, but where he dwells. So Satan's not going anywhere. And they can't get rid of him. He shouldn't get rid of them. Stay there, is what Jesus is saying to the church. Stay right there. And in that very context where you refuse to cut and run to higher ground or to a safer place or to a more Christian environment, hold fast to his name. That's the commendation. That's what they had done says this, you did not deny the faith, you held fast instead to my name. Of course, you know what my name is. A name is a person. The name of Jesus is Jesus in his totality. It's not just a title, it's the person. So they're holding fast 
to the person, to the name, to the gospel, to the word of Jesus. And they did not deny the faith in him, his faith, their faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you? Oh, this is getting real. This is serious. I mean, this is the place where Christians are being killed. And that's the place where Jesus says to stay. Stay put. Hold fast to the name. Refuse to let go or even loosen your grips, what that word means. And refuse to deny the faith. Which is an important statement here at the center of religious activity, not only for paganism, sexual immorality, and also emperor worship. It's important to say that you have not loosened your grip on your faith or let go of your confession. Because all you have to do to do well in this town is go one time a year to the temple. Get one little pinch of incense and sprinkle it on the altar and say one little innocuous, simple, doesn't mean anything, I didn't really mean it, it was just words. All you've got to do is say Caesar is Lord one time. You go believe whatever you want. As soon as you walk out, you can practice any religion, any faith. We don't care if you're Christian. We don't care if you're Jewish. We don't care what you are as long as you are subject to the lordship of Caesar because Caesar is God. That's all you got to do. Now, here's the problem. They can't both be true. Either Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not or Caesar is Lord and Jesus is not. This is why you can't take Christianity with anything else. Because the claims of Christ are exclusive. Not your claims, not my claims, not your opinion, not even what you believe. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said that. That's all you got to say. Never say, I think, or I believe, or I feel like, or it seems to me that. No, the, Jesus said. By the way, just stop. If you ever hear anybody say, Jesus was a good man, but I don't believe he was God. You say, can't have it both ways. Because he's not a good man if he claimed to be God. He's crazy. Or he's leading a massive group of people who are delusioned and he's deceptive. It can't be a good man if he's not God, man. Right? And this is the situation in Pergamum. All they got to do is just agree to pay homage to Caesar one time. They get a certificate. They get entry into the Roman guilds. They get to trade, to buy, to sell, to have entrance to places, to have relationships with people. It doesn't matter what you do the other 364 and 11 out of 12 hours of the day. Just do that. Just that's all you got to do. But to do it, you're going to have to loosen your grip a little bit. Relax. Don't be so radical. You know, be open-minded. Tolerance is a good thing. We want to be inclusive of all thoughts and of everybody's version of their own truth, right? Uh, no. Victor, how come you hadn't said amen not one time tonight? I hadn't got to it yet, have I? Thank you. Doesn't count if I have to ask for it. <laughs> and even to the degree that one of them, Antipas, and we don't know anything else about him, but was a faithful witness and became a faithful witness. Same word, martyr, martus. He was a faithful witness and he was a faithful witness. 
because he held fast to his confession. He didn't loosen his grip or let go to his belief in Jesus. Meaning that when they said, worship Caesar, he said, can't do it. They said, we'll kill you. He said, you can do that. We don't know for sure. Tradition tells us that he was baked in a brazen bull. But he wouldn't let go of his faith. He wouldn't compromise his convictions. He wouldn't swallow the everything is true pill. So they'd overcome the obvious, and I want you to see this. This is an affirmation. The church of Pergamum has stood against the devil himself, lives next door, and said to Rome, do what you will, do what you must, but we will never deny Jesus is Lord. So they're winning the big one here. You see that. They are winning big and standing against the biggest enemy and really the only enemy that has the legal authority and every right to kill them. But that's not the problem. The problem is in the next phrase, in verse 14. Because while they had overcome the obvious, they're about to cave to compromise. Listen to verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there, some not all. Good statement. Some not all, some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Read that in Numbers around the 20s there, 20 to 26-ish. So that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality, which is exactly what was happening in Pergamum and all those temple rituals, all those cultic practices. Idolatry and sexual immorality was rampant and celebrated. And oh, by the way, open to any and all, including Christians. So also you have some, not all, some, who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Second time we've heard the name, we still don't know much about them, except that because they're now grouped in here with verse 14 and 15 with these who are teachings, uh, sharing the teachings of Balaam that probably believe about the same thing. There's probably some consistency here. It seems to line up with the church at Ephesus issues. Now let me tell you what's happening here. Uh, Rome can't conquer the church. The pagan immorality and idolatry has not overcome the witness of the church. You can kill these people and they won't cave. I mean, you can put a guy in a a bronze bull and light a fire under it and cook him but he'll never deny Jesus is Lord we got to come up with a better strategy because this ain't working this whole force on force this ain't working this is just making them stronger by the way the church of China is thriving under intense pressure and persecution while churches in the free world are dying you can't conquer the church Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. That's the deal. So we need a better strategy if we're going to take it out. So we remember that story of Balaam and Balak. And Balaam was a true prophet who Balak paid. He was a mercenary prophet to curse Israel as they passed through his lands on the way to the promised land. But you know how God works. Everything meant for evil, he brings for good. And so every time Balaam pronounced the prophecy... God turned it into a blessing. Curses became blessings. Curses became blessings. Balak's watching this going, what am I paying you for? I told you to curse them. And Balaam's like, I am cursing them as hard as I can. I'm using every curse word I know. But God just keeps turning all those curses into blessings. You can't conquer them. You can't beat them. You can't overcome them. 
But then Balaam comes up with an idea. He says, well, if we can't conquer them, maybe we can corrupt them. You ready? Maybe we can do this from the inside. So he gave Balak a strategy. This was the, the strategy. He said, look, let's do this. Let's not be enemies with these people. We're not getting anywhere with our battle garments. Let's move in next door. Let's welcome them to the community. Let's have some block parties. Let's all get together. And let's just be good neighbors and good friends. We can coexist. We don't have to hate each other. Let's be buddies. Come on in here. Israel said, well, that's refreshing. Everywhere we've been, they tried to kill us. And for the first time, somebody welcomes us to the neighborhood. How cool is that? And then little Moabite women went prancing by, you know, like nothing's going on. And the others were like, man, look at that and said, wow, Moabites. Hmm. And they married them, which led them to sexual immorality and idolatry. And 24,000 Israelites died in God's judgment because of compromise. Not conquered by the Moabites. Corrupted because of compromise. And in Pergamum, here's what's happening. Rome can't prevail against the church with force. Pagan temples and all of these false gods cannot overwhelm or overcome the church. It stands strong in the face of adversity. So all you got to do is sneak around the back door and come in as a friend and start to speak untruth and tell lies. Small ones, not big ones. Small ones, little ones that add up over time. One degree difference, just off course, a slight little bit. Sounds true. Oh my goodness, that sounds so much true. All of it must be true, except if 1% of it's not true, guess what? It's not true. Didn't you tell your kids a little white lie is a great big, great big lie, you know? Any mixture of truth with untruth negates truth. Are you with me? So here they come. They had beaten the big bad bullies. And they're about to fall at the feet of little old life group teachers and small group leaders and Bible study teachers. That's what's happening. Somebody's in somebody's living room saying, you know what I heard? Can I tell you about a book I read? You know, I was just thinking the other day. You know, I know that we read that God said, but do you really think that's what God meant? And do you really think that still applies? Because you know the world's changed a lot since God said that. Do you think possibly maybe that perhaps if we could just like cool it a little bit on the whole radical faith thing and maybe just go ahead and just try to be good neighbors and just try to get along, you know? Maybe we wouldn't have to do the whole fire in the belly bull thing, man. Maybe we could just... You know, it won't be perfect, it won't be awesome, it won't be incredible, but hey, it doesn't have to be this bad if we could just, just dial it back a little bit. I mean, after all, we need Christians in the marketplace. How are you going to be a Christian in the marketplace if you don't have a certificate to do business in the marketplace? I mean, we need believers with strong witnesses who know the word of God to be out there in the places where the people are. How are you going to get out there in the places where the people are if you've got a mark on your back that says you're not allowed to be here? So don't you think that God would be okay with a little pinch one time a year? Think of all the good that could come from just, let's call that surrender. I don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. 
We're going to feel bad about it, but for the greater good, for the glory of God and for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's just go ahead and do it, and then we can ask forgiveness after. So Rome couldn't take them out, but a little slithering serpent who said, did God really say? And she didn't know what God had really said, and he didn't either. So, here's the lesson for us in this particular text, and then we're going to make a mad dash to the end. Be careful not to become distracted while celebrating those big wins and those big battles. When subtly, something may be eating away at the very foundation. You know, you, you can put all the locks on your front door you want, but if you don't deal with those termites, you know, I mean, let the termite eat the door frame away. How are your locks going to do if the whole door frame caves in? Right? So it's not just the front. It's not just, we're the church of the living God. It's what you do after church. It's where you go on your way home. It's how you live and how you behave. and It's the influences that you let influence you. It's the little trickle of the little lie that adds up to a great, big, terrible story that takes us out at the very level of our foundations and ruins our witness and our testimony. And do you know what happens at that point? We don't even know. Because we've been so lied to and have believed the lie so long, we can't even recognize truth anymore for what it used to be. We just think that was, boy, back, oh man, remember back then? Boy, we were backwards, weren't we? We were old-fashioned. We didn't have any degrees. We're so smart now. We're so open-minded and progressive, aren't we? Have you noticed Americans breaking their arms to pat themselves on the back for how progressive they are when they are? Give me a break. Who in the world goes on social media for national attention to state that they are raising their children genderless. What? Sorry, did I go over the top there? That's crazy. Woe unto you when you call good evil and evil good. Come on. But you've got people who claim to be Christians going to churches that claim to be Christians that are so... Impressed by that. Nonsense. To, to have gone so far down the, the hill of deceit and deception to not even recognize the truth when it walks past. And to buy every lie because there are people there affirming you and congratulating you and telling you how wonderful you are that you're raising your children genderless. Poor kid. Poor kid. Sorry, she's not listening. So verse 16 is the answer. Repent, turn back before it's too late. Listen to verse 16. Therefore, repent. That just means to turn around, go the other way. Change your mind, therefore your direction. You're going the wrong way. Quit going that way. Stop. Because the only answer to sin is repentance. You know that whole sin will take you further than you wanted to go, cost you more than you want to pay, right? So stop. 
And this is a broad repentance here. This is a, this is a broad application. If you're teaching it, stop teaching it. If you're doing it, stop doing it. If you're allowing it to be taught or done, stop allowing it to be taught or done. It's a broad. In other words, at what point does accommodation and toleration equal participation? Hmm? You know, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. All it takes for a lie to get legs is for people who know the truth to watch it and not speak to it. Oh, but Pastor David, you know, we were in our Bible study group and they said something and I knew it wasn't true, but you know, we don't want to hurt their feelings. We're all just learning here. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Why are you there? It's not modern art. Can I remind you the Bible is not a painting that everybody's supposed to look at it and go, well, what I see is, you know, it drives me crazy in a group for people to say, what that says to me is, you know, what I take from that is, no, stop. The Bible was written by God. It has an author, therefore it has an intent and a purpose and a meaning and an application. Our job is to properly discern that. It's not modern art. Next time you go to a Bible study, you're going to have a hard time. Because somebody in that Bible school is going to say, you know, when I read this verse, it just tells me this. And you're going to go, what? No, it doesn't. You made that up. And then you got a question. See, are you just going to go, oh, that's nice, and try to move on like it was never said? Or are you going to say, ready? Or are you going to say, well, love you. Respect you as a person. I'm for you as a disciple. But let's talk about that a minute. And do it as nicely as you can. But can you just let stuff go that's not true? And worse, affirm it as it goes running by? Because you don't know where that lie is going to stop or how many people it's going to run into on its way. And the the potential problem here in, in Pergamum isn't just that there are liars sprinkled in out there in some of these you know circles of folks not the whole church not all of them but apparently enough of them are letting it happen such that it's growing like yeast it's permeating and that's exactly the strategy we can't knock the door down let's sleep slip in the back window Let's come in as friends and neighbors. Let's bring an apple pie with us when we come. That'll distract them. They won't see the, the 45 or the dagger or the hatchet in our other hand. If we come in with a cherry pie, that's all. Oh, what a good neighbor. Yeah. Y'all know that whole camel in the tent thing, right? Well, that's the strategy in Pergamum. And Jesus says, hey, stop it. If you don't, look at this. How many times have you heard this? If not, I will come to you soon. Soon doesn't mean in a minute. It means Suddenly. Suddenly, I, I'm a, I know where you're dwelling and I know what a great job you've done, but I also know there's this insidious untruth that's beginning to permeate the body, my bride. I'm not going to put up with it forever, so I'm going to give you a minute here to deal with this. And if you don't, I will. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I'll speak truth if you won't. I'll speak truth if you don't. That's a loving encouragement here. I want you to notice this, that Jesus loves his church too much to let her drift off into nothingness. He does. He loves his church enough to fight for her. 
He loves her purity. He's jealous for her righteousness. His goal is to present her complete and mature and a radiant, glorious bride. Not to let cancer, for the sake of being nice, good neighbors, destroy the body. Right? Sometimes you've got to fight against I told my kids that they're going to get so tired of me talking about him. Y'all might already be tired of me talking about him. I have told my kids many times, I'll make you a promise. I'm going to fight for you even if I have to fight against you. Does that comment, does, does, I'm going to fight for you even if I have to fight against you. That is exactly what Jesus is saying to the church. I'm for you. And I'm so for you, I'm going to fight you if I have to, for you. Do you know, by the way, what you're doing with, with, with those drugs and medications you take, you know, that we take? You know, I've had the cancer diagnosis and I had to, you know, I went under the knife, the whole deal. I, you know why, what you're doing? You are attacking yourself to save yourself. I mean, when a person comes at you with a sharp blade, you're supposed to run. Not lay there and go. Until you know that his heart is good and for you and he's trying to help you. And then you're glad to lay there and let him do whatever he's got to do to you to save you. Can I just suggest that Jesus is going to work on his church. Even if his church says, ouch. He's going to fight for its purity and for its holiness and for its rightness. In verse 17, we wrap it up with this. This is really important. This is really important. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I mean, it's not obvious. It's not clear. It's not like it's on every shelf and along every street and on every corner. It's not selling this down in the market. It's hidden. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that, knows, that no one knows except the one who receives it. So... Here's the point I'd like to make. Verse chapter, or point four was turn back before it's too late. Point five is never settle. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And really, this is at the heart of it. Because we're holding on to Jesus and we've got a firm grip on who he is and his word and what he said and how that applies to our lives. We're living with core conviction and we refuse to compromise. And then something floats along out here and we look over there and we go, ooh, what's that? Well, I don't have that. I wonder if I could have that. And the music's playing, you know. And the timing's right. And then the lies start. And we think, boy, if, you know, I'd like to have that. Well, if I could just get that. Mm. But I can't get it because I got this. I'd have to let go of this a little bit to get a hold of that. And that's the lie. That's the lie to Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's the lie in Pergamum. Because here's what they wanted. They wanted to be accepted. They wanted to be invited to the table. They wanted to be a part of the banquet feast where they were celebrating immorality and sexual idolatry with food sacrificed to idols. There were some Christians who said, let's go be a witness. <laughs> let's go be a witness at the banquet to Zeus. Yes, they need a Christian witness there. So we want to be there because we're missing out on all the fun. So if we loosen up a little bit on Jesus and on the core convictions and the word of God and what we know to be true, just to get a hold of a little bit of this, a little bit, 
what we're really saying is, is what I have is insufficient for me. It's not enough for me. It doesn't satisfy me. I need that. I got to have that. Boy, if I could get that, I'll be satisfied. If I could get that, I'll be fulfilled. I mean, that's the one thing I need more, more than anything in the world. Next, so we, we've so let go of that, we don't even know where that is anymore. But the problem is, is we can't get this either. Because as soon as you let go of that to get a hold of it, that's gone. That's gone. It's a mirage. It's not real. It's a lie. That's temptation, by the way, the enticement. And it starts with the lie in our heart that says Jesus isn't enough, is he? He's not enough for you, is he? You need more. You deserve more. God owes you more. Speak it like you mean it, and he'll give you more. Nonsense. You know, I have never told God to do anything and heard him say, oh, okay. <laughs> but whenever we start letting go of what, what Jesus is, who he is, and what he said, and what it means, and how it applies, and how we live it out every day, to get a hold of something else, it just simply says, we feel and fear that what we have is insufficient. We must have whatever the enticement is. So the promise. Notice, if you'll just hang on, if you'll just stand up, if you'll just withstand the temptation to compromise, you will overcome. You'll be a conqueror. And I'll give you some of that hidden manna. Because see, manna was bread from heaven. Jesus is the bread of life who came down from heaven. I will give him some of that hidden manna and I will give him a white stone which is an access key card. You didn't want a black stone, you'd be blackballed. You can't come in here. Or we voted and, sorry, you're out. But a white stone was access. It's like this swipe the key card, you can come in. So they wanted to be in. They wanted to be fulfilled. They wanted to be accepted. They wanted to establish their identity. And Jesus said, I'll feed you till you're full and satisfied. And I'll give you what you need to experience not only the identity of who you are in Christ, but access to the fullest fellowship. Forget food sacrificed to idols. Are you kidding? That's not even dog food. That's what comes out the other end. Seriously, I'm not being rude. Compare this. Listen to me. Miss Carolyn thinks I'm joking. Uh, we, we think from the front that it's this king cake. It's delicious and wonderful and sweet and I need it and I want it until I get it and then I discover by comparison to what God has for us, by comparison to who Jesus is and all that he has for us. I mean, where would you rather be accepted except in the embrace of Jesus in the arms of our Father? That's his promise. He looked, don't cave, don't compromise, don't quit. Stand firm, stay true, and everything you need will be given to you. And everything you ever hope to be and more, you will become. Amen. With that amazing sense of identity, status, access, and intimacy. I want to remind you, every time you're tempted to compromise, just remember, it's a test to see whether or not, in fact, you believe Jesus is enough. And his word is true. If you could believe with your whole heart that Jesus is enough and his word is true and I don't need anything else, compromise is not your habit. Jesus is enough. He's worth the risk. Even if it costs us everything, as we've seen in this church, 
So don't sacrifice, listen to me carefully, don't sacrifice the eternal on the altar of today. It's a lie. Met a man this week who's a West Point graduate. It's called the Cadet Prayer. And every Sunday it's said in the chapel services at West Point, And it's the portion called Harder Right. Make us choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong. And never to be contented with half truth when whole truth can be won. Endow us with courage that is born of loyalty to all that is noble and worthy that scorns to compromise with vice and injustice and knows no fear when right and truth are in jeopardy. I believe that could be our prayer tonight. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at championforest.org. Have a great day and God bless.